1: A lot of the players I played against that day, I ended up becoming a member of the kangaroo team with, and we uh, toured England and France. Those days, the tours lasted nearly six months. Uh So the kangaroo tour was absolutely amazing, uh, incredible memories and a wonderful time, but certainly, uh, one would say, not a very godly time.
0: G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, last time we heard Lindy Gallagher share her story of living a self-obsessed life of glamour and beauty before finally putting her faith in the Lord and beginning to serve others. Today, we'll hear from her husband, Noel, who has a somewhat similar story. In his younger years, he enjoyed the life of a professional athlete as an international rugby league player and never had much time for God. That was until the Lord finally got a hold of his heart and gave him a passion for helping others in various ministries. Noel Gallagher is having a chat and sharing his story with Karen Hunt.
2: You are living on Bribie Island, is that right?
0: That's right.
1: Enjoying every second of it.
2: A beautiful part of southeast Queensland. It Not is. too far from the city and from, uh, you know, some great communities there. Tell us, Noel, your early days. I mean, you started out as a professional rugby league player. When you were a kid, where were you born and bred and was rugby always a part of your world?
1: Yes, well, Wynnum in Brisbane. Well, actually, Lindum uh, went to Wynnum state school and I'm High School, and rugby league became part of my life at an early age, uh, rugby league in winter and cricket in summer, mm-hmm. like most boys of my era. Interesting in that in my earlier days, I was diagnosed, I thought uh, polio um, uh, epidemic had swept through in the late 40s, and uh, I was um, crippled up a bit, I couldn't seem to walk and uh, so they thought I had polio but Mm. it wasn't discovered until many years later in my football career that I had a disease called osteochondritis desiccans which affected the way I walked and the way I ran and everything else so I sort of hobbled around a bit so by the time I was 14 rugby league seemed to be my whole world and I ended up playing for Queensland schoolboys and in front of a then massive crowd at the exhibition ground in front of a test, won the best and fairest on the ground. So from there on in, all I dreamed of being was uh, a rugby league player.
2: Well, nothing held you back then, hey, physically?
1: Well, no, uh, Evan Lee to me, it was normal, but everybody else seemed to be, they wrote a lot of stories in the paper and a little bit like they can do sometimes, exaggerated, like I, I threw off my calipers and got on the football field and scored a try, sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I first read the story as a young man, I thought... Who is this poor person? <laughs>
2: oh, a little bit of journalistic creative licence, hey? Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> but it is a disease that's affected me all my life, yeah.
2: So other than football, were there other things that you were involved with, things that you were good at or things that you enjoyed?
1: Well, yes, cricket, uh, sport, uh, um, long-distance running, everything. I just, uh, my life was all built around that. And my mother and father, they never missed a game of football that I played and... uh
2: Noel, tell us a little bit about your family, your mum, your dad, siblings. Were you born into a family with a faith? Or, or not really? Was church and Christianity a part of your world? Tell us.
1: Well, yes. Uh, my mother, uh, she was only a very short woman, but my father, a very tall man. Mm-hmm. And uh, he'd had a terrible experience as a kid in what they did in those days, the Gallaghers. Uh, there was eight boys, and he was selected to be a priest, uh, to study to be a priest. And anyway, as an altar boy, he, he'd certainly been molested by the priest. Mm. Nobody understood it those days. Mm-hmm. He ran away and became a real rebel and uh, he thought there was no God and if there was a God, he was somebody didn't want to know if that's what life was about. So he he watched over me, uh, wouldn't let me join uh, scouts or anything like that, anywhere where there was men in control. Mm-hmm. But my mother used to sneak us off to a little house at Lindham in Brisbane yeah. where we, we had Sunday school and she was a believer and uh, as I said with the uh, football um, where I played for Queensland the very next year I'd gone forward at a Billy Graham crusade uh-huh. in the same spot yeah, and accepted Christ into my life and uh, that became sort of dormant as my life went on because football became such a life, rugby league and that sort of community. So church dropped out of my life um, as I grew older and um, there was always that bit of a prayer under the blanket, you know, uh, of a night, like I bet each way, you know, well, if there is a God, I better say something to him, you know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Noel, what was it about that particular night at the Billy Graham crusade? What was it that flicked your switch and encouraged you to actually go forward and make a decision?
1: Well, I think, like many people, the Billy Graham Crusades or any big crusades, most of the people that went them had been prepared in some format. You know, I mean, we'd had that Sunday school that we used to go to in a, a little old lady's house, and she had a great impact on my the life. Mm-hmm. There was something special about her. But as far as accepting Christ in your life, Billy Graham's simple evangelistic message hit home. And you realize that, yes, this is something I need to do. Go forward and ask Christ into my life. So over the the last 50 years, I've, I've seen the importance of actually making that decision. Some days there's a time when we just confess that decision, which solidifies things deep in our spirit. And it's something that I practice myself with people that, That confessing the words has an impact in our life. I don't think it should ever be um, demised as, oh, well, I just said a few words. I try, when I'm maybe leading somebody to the Lord, I tell them the importance of making that confession.
2: Noel, tell me, how did you get into professional international rugby league playing? And maybe what are some of your favourite memories with that particular season of your life?
1: I remember uh, there was no full-time professional rugby league players in that era, in the 60s. That didn't come in really until about the 80s. Uh, But what was associated with being in the top grade of rugby league is that usually you got a good job somewhere and you'd get some compensation. Like, I know when I was 18, I was offered contracts, but we all had jobs as well.
2: So, Noel, what was your job at that
1: time? Uh, Driving a Coca-Cola truck.
2: Okay. (laughs) Uh,
1: So through the week I was driving the Coca-Cola truck and the weekend playing rugby league. I'd been transferred to Bundaberg where I went on to represent Bundaberg, Wide Bay and Queensland. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the most interesting uh, situations with it, we were the first countryside to win the state championship. They used to have a state championship league where you played Brisbane switched to Toowoomba, uh, North Queensland, Central Queensland, uh, and all that sort of thing. And Wide Bay won it, won the state championship, which was quite amazing at the time. And uh, from that, I got picked to play for Queensland. Then the following year, the Kangaroos saw well, what happened was that Australia come and played Bundaberg in Bundaberg. Which was the first time an Australian side never played a provincial town, okay. or never played had ever played another team in Australia outside of an international side. Yeah. So the whole of Bundaberg, they they, they uh, declared it a holiday, and uh, so we had this massive crowd out at Soldier Oval to watch their local, as they said, heroes uh, play the Australian side. So that asking what a, a major point that was a very exciting thing. I was then uh, nineteen years of age, so.
2: A very special memory.
1: Yeah, and of course, the fellas that a lot of the players I played against that day, I ended up becoming a member of the kangaroo team with, and we uh, toured England and France. Those days, the tours lasted nearly six months, Uh and we played 28 games in England and uh, seven games in France, and then came back through Hong Kong to Australia. So the kangaroo tour was absolutely amazing, uh, incredible memories and a uh, wonderful time. But certainly, uh, one would say, not a very godly time. But
2: uh, I was just going to say, <laughs> where was God in that picture for you personally?
1: As I said, that quiet prayer under the blankets every now and again saying, well, you know, God, I'm, I'm not really behaving too well, but I hope you forgive me. You know, that hmm. that's sort of pr- uh, situation, you know, but in the meantime, living a life of, uh, of Riley, the worst. <laughs> um, you know, we had parties every night. They were pretty wild and all sorts of
0: stuff went on, you know. You're listening to The Story. Today, Karen Hunt is chatting with Noel Gallagher, who has gone from living a party lifestyle as a professional athlete to serving others as a chaplain. We'll hear how God gets a hold of His heart when we return. The Story If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax, and this is The Story. We're continuing with Karen Hunt chatting with Noel Gallagher, who's gone from living a party lifestyle as a professional athlete to serving others as a chaplain in various ministries. Now, here's more of Noel sharing his life journey.
2: Noel, you've just been sharing with us the special memories of your time in the 60s, touring as a professional international rugby league player with the Aussie Kangaroos team. You said you went throughout England and Europe for, what, six months? Yes. Coming back, though, to Australia, what did life look like when you came back and what did you get involved with after that?
1: Well, um, there was an adjusting of getting back into normal type of life, but uh, I was then sought after by the clubs in Sydney where Mm -hmm. all the big money was, and so many clubs offered me money. There used to be, in those days, what they called an interest state transfer ban. Queensland was trying to stop players going to New South Wales where the big money was because they were losing all their good players. So Queensland Rugby League had put a ban on players if they played for Queensland or Australia. Mm-hmm. So, and they also put a transfer fee on me, which was a world record at that stage, which was $11,000, which doesn't seem much now, but it was a lot of money then. Yeah. If I went to Sydney, I had to sit out for 12 months, which I did. I went to Sydney, uh, got a job in Sydney, then negotiated with all the different clubs on who I would play for. Mm-hmm. Um, because I worked for a company called Geldi, the owner of Geldi, which was a, a, one of the biggest private companies in Australia in those days, was the chairman of Cronulla, a new club. I leaned towards joining them, and uh, hence I signed up with them, um, built a lot of relationships and everything else. But everything was around business and rugby league. There was no God stuff in my life, as I said, apart from the occasional prayer under the blankets. And so uh, life drifted on and I just got very involved in uh, business. I became the Australian sales manager. This was in fur fabric materials and all that sort of thing. So that became uh, our major lifestyle. And then uh, I uh, went into my own business with another man. What
2: type of business was that, Noel?
1: We were in import business, yep. uh, importing uh, goods, and we are also... Uh, before that, we were in toys. Okay. <laughs> Stuart and I uh, were both pretty wild in those days, and uh, we were great mates and still are today, and uh, we uh, went through a lot of things together, and when Stuart's father got very ill with cancer, he was looking for ways to cure him, and one of them was uh, he got involved in the charismatic movement at that time. and. Uh, He had an uh, impact on me to come along to those early days of COC. Uh And so uh, we went along and uh, that was sort of the relighting of, of my faith. Because before that, we used to often have a chat about it and we'd probably be in a bar somewhere, probably had far too much to drink and sometimes we'd talk about is God real or not. So all of those things, when you look back in the great network of God, you see how things get enlightened again mm. look we've done some weird and wonderful things you know in our early days of our christian walk we used to put all the bills on the table and put our hand on them and pray over them and they'd get paid miraculously and all those things you do in your uh, your early walk and all that sort of thing and but as we matured uh, Stuart went on to go over and do missionary work in india and everything else like that and uh, I went on to be involved in a lot of uh, Australian stuff, and especially in men's ministry. Yeah. Yeah, that's how that evolved.
2: You're talking about men's ministry. I, I'm aware that you initiated breakfast groupings in pubs for blokes as a part of the Christian Men's Network. That was like in what, the early mid 90s,
1: was it? That's right, yes. We felt that we needed a common ground. For the man in the street. You know, uh, churches, when often men had uh, men's breakfasts and things like that, um, it was very hard to get a bloke off the street to say, Listen, come along to a church and have breakfast. So we started having them in pubs and clubs and all that sort of thing. Uh, we had men from all sorts of different walks of life given their testimonies. You know, we got to stage where we saw some remarkable change in men's lives. It was a place where they didn't feel uh, like they were walking into a religious experience. They felt like they could be comfortable. Just by the pure power of the the testimonies of different men,
2: Mm.
1: they could be affected.
2: So now as the founder of Bad Boys Down Under, I'm aware that your motto is exactly what you're talking about at the moment. From bad boys to great men, you really have such a heart for the lost. Not so much the saved, but for the lost and especially the male species. Yes. No, how long were you actually an official prison chaplain for? Uh,
1: About eight years, I
2: think it was. Okay, so eight years with the correctional services. Tell us more about... Bad Boys Down Under. What is this club? What do you do
1: and why? Well, in connecting it back up with the chaplaincy inside the prison, we had tremendous, saw tremendous results of many men coming to Christ. Some of the most hard-nosed men and uh, some that had Really dreadful backgrounds and everything else like that Once we'd introduced them to Christ The most beautiful tool was the word for the day And I would have had literally hundreds of men say I think they've written that just for me mm-hmm. What they've written today was just for me It spoke to me And so I know that I used to take about 200 into Woodford Prison And about 100 into Arthur Gorry Prison and it was just a remarkable tool you know I see men just fed off it and then um, we got to a stage where in jail we had well it became very difficult for the prison because there were so many men coming to chapel and it became a security risk and so they uh, really had to divide it all up we had literally hundreds and so we broke them up into small groups And a lot of their feeding came out of the Word for the Day and then they'd read the scriptures that were with it in the Bible. But when they got outside so often, as I expressed earlier, it's a whole new world and it's very hard to fit in outside. Things like getting a job after you've been in prison, finding somewhere to live when you've got no money um, because when you get out of prison you get one week's pay. And that was, you know... Well, and then
2: you're and, on your own.
1: And Yes. Wow. So it's almost impossible mm-hmm. if you haven't got support outside. So the Bad Boys was a place where at least they could meet up and we could help. We had a, a number of uh, men. The Bad Boys sometimes might consist of eight straight men and two ex-inmates. I remember one day we had 19 inmates and myself and somebody else, you know. But the word for the day was always a solid part of it. It used to be just a meeting. Then an inmate who'd done about 23 years in and out of jail found that the meeting was absolutely wonderful for himself. And he started to invite a lot of other inmates along And he named it The Bad Boys. He'd say to the other fellas, this song came out at the time, Bad Boys, Bad Boys, what Uh you're going to do when the law comes for you? And he changed it and he had it on his phone his message on his phone, (laughs) Bad Boys, Bad Boys, what you gonna do when the Lord Uh, comes for you. What you
2: you gonna do when the Lord comes for you? Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's fun. And so that's how it got the name Bad Boys Uh happened in about two thousand. Yeah. And he was amazing. I mean he still is amazing, but he's a guy that, you know, addicted to drugs and, and all sorts of problems and everything else but his testimony of witness to other inmates was that without Jesus, we've got no hope. Mm. He nicknamed it the bad boys and, and when we went on to run other things like picnic in the park where we had like literally scores of drunk people and everything else, he was amazing. He would be able to go in and get them out of their drug houses and everything else and get them along so they could hear the gospel. And many of them even today still remember those days because we used to get families there and we have kids' games and all sorts of things. So bad boys went into an area where it touched families and uh, even the mayor at the time uh, in Kamulcha here one day visited with a whole lot of presents, and she said, uh, this is just an amazing event. And I said, you know, as a mayor, she asked me the question, she said, how many drug people would like to be in, in this community? I said, probably 5,000. Wow. She said, I'm just amazed mm-hmm. And uh, I said to her, this your presence here today she, she, she didn't announce it or anything else And didn't want it for any political reasons mm-hmm. She wanted to do something that was um, good for the community mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, I told her, this one of the great things she'd done as a mayor But I'm going on to that just to show you that Although Bad Boys is low-key and everything else it, it was able to reach out into many, many areas and also, we restricted to men, but men had relationship with other women, and, other, and so they'd all say, oh, we'll, we'll get our wives or our partners or our daughters or mothers or anything else to get hold of Lindy, and so Lindy could handle the women's side of it, mm-hmm. and uh, we could concentrate on the male side of it, mm-hmm. so... It was far more than just a little meeting at McDonald's or anything else like that. That's where it's been for 15 years. And also in the Valley, Lindy and I have incredible stories that would fill a book of amazing things that happened with all sorts of people. So in itself, it's low key and it's developed just for ex-inmates. But it has a far bigger reach out in the community Mm. than ex-inmates.
2: So essentially, if I've understood correctly, it's a breakfast club. It meets fortnightly at the local McDonald's. Yes. You've got a laid-back, supportive atmosphere. Essentially, it's for ex-inmates and the purpose to create new networks, so to speak, so they can effectively reintegrate into the community. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so you really are helping men firsthand as a marketplace minister get out of the cycle which can be so damaging of crime and prison. Exactly. What a great work you're doing, Noel.
1: Well, we get blessed by it all the time. And the many, many, many men, I'm only a spoke and a wheel, I have many men that are that are beside us and help us and men that contribute, you know, when we've got a put somebody into a house or anything else there to help with the finances and food and furniture and all those sorts of things. Our money, as I say, I spoke broken the wheel. It's a team and uh, it has certainly done a lot. Of, well, we've allowed God to work through us to touch a lot of lives. Mm.
2: Thanks so much for your time, Noel.
0: Yeah, and thank you, Karen. That was Karen Hunt chatting with Noel Gallagher the founder of a men's ministry called Bad Boys Down Under, which helps ex-inmates transition from prison to the community. Noel's the husband of our guest last time, Lindy Gallagher, who, as we heard, also was involved in prison ministry. As we mentioned, since these interviews were recorded, both Noel and Lindy have gone on journeys with cancer. Fortunately, both of them have fully recovered, but are a little bit weaker these days and no longer visiting prison but they are still very much a part of the lives of the people they have ministered to over the years. Lindy says the Bible verse that best sums up the way many of the men feel about Noel is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Even if you had 10,000 teachers or instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. And that's basically the relationship that Noel has developed with many ex-prison inmates over the years. He's become a father figure to them. It's great to hear that he can still minister to them to this day. Well, thanks for joining us for Noel's story. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. I gave the speech and it was rousing and everybody loved it and they gave applause. But what they didn't know was that internally my life was a mess. Um, My family was kind of falling apart, there was tons of arguing that was going on and internally I was struggling with these feelings of homosexuality that nobody knew about. And I tried to pray and it didn't go away so I thought if it doesn't go away maybe the best thing is for me to go away. Ricky Chilette grew up knowing that he was always a bit different and not attracted to the usual rough and tumble activities of other boys his age. He was a bit more sensitive and eventually began to struggle with same-sex attraction before finally becoming a Christian and having a heart to help others struggling with sexual brokenness. We'll hear Ricky's story next time. The Story, just another way vision is connecting faith to
2: life.